uh, Interstate 5. I was living in the States at the time. And five deer jumped in front of my vehicle doing 70 miles an hour. And you know, you're trying to navigate between five deer. How many know that's almost an impossibility? I'm trying to slow down, and I'm thinking for one, you know, and everything goes in slow motion. Anybody had this experience? You haven't, you're about, everything's almost like a time freeze. You're in slow motion, and I'm thinking, I think I'm going to miss these deer. And finally, one of them jumps up on my car slides up on the hood, slides across the windshield. Now I'm thinking he's coming through. Fortunately, he didn't. Car finally comes to a stop. Deer slides off the hood. And again, there's a car following me on the freeway. It happens to be one of the forest rangers. Of course, they have service revolvers in the States. He walks over, pulls out a service revolver, walks up to the deer. You know, it's still twitching. He shoots the deer. He walks over to me with his revolver, and I'm thinking to myself... I didn't mean to do it. <laughs> because when you're in this state of shock, your brain is thinking like, I like deers too. You don't have to shoot me. I didn't mean to kill them, right? Uh, it's amazing what can motivate us in our lives. When problems come to us, you know, how are we gonna respond to those situations in our life? And there's no question that we're actually tempted to communicate our frustrations with other people. And I think that's okay. I think there's a place for you and I to share our burdens and pray for one another. But then if we're not careful, it can quickly become a way of life. You know, we, we start complaining. And the next thing you know, we just find ourselves developing a kind of a complaining mentality. And, and everywhere we go, and anybody that will listen, we'll just keep complaining about what's going on in our lives. Mark Twain once stated regarding people who tended to complain, don't complain and talk about all your problems. 80% of the people don't care, and the other 20% think you deserve them. <laughs> now, I know that's a very cynical approach to life. That's not quite true, Mark, but, you know, he's trying to make a point. And, and basically, the point often is, is that our, our attitude is so powerful in our lives and how we look at life and how we see problems that come into our life. And, you know, I, I kind of discovered a long time ago that my unbelief, my, my frustrations, my angst, all the things that are going on in my life, you know, usually don't bring blessings to other people. You know, it's just not the way it works. But I found out if I just stayed in that little mode of, you know, feeling sorry for myself, it really brought me down as a person. And, you know, and, and I jokingly say this, that the only person that usually shows up at the pity party is the devil, and he just keeps pouring the tea, you know? So if you want to hang there and camp there, it becomes a very difficult place to survive life. So uh, I think we can easily get wallowing and pity, and if you're not careful, you get trapped into a certain state of mind. You know, everything is dark, everything's black, everybody's against you, nobody cares. You know, we can go into that whole realm in our minds. And I, I'm going to tell you that life is primarily what's happening between our ears. It's in our mind, it's about our attitude. And that's why I think the Bible is probably the greatest mental health book available. And we're going to look at a, a book of the Bible that I think is probably the greatest book of the Bible that deals with mental well-being. And I know we're living in a culture today and we're talking a lot about mental health. I think it's important that we come to the Word of God and say, what does God have to say about a lot of these things? So, you know, the issue is not so much the problems uh, and troubles that come our way, but rather it's our response to trouble. Because Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have trouble. He said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. That's another fancy word for trouble. You're going to have difficulties, and you're going to have hardships, and there's going to be disappointments in life. 
And some of the disappointments are, you know, valid, and some of them are because we have an unrealistic expectation. We're upset because, you know, God didn't do it the way we thought he should. Or we're upset because somebody let us down. And that happens all the time. That's part of the way life works. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Because we're left with this in our lives. And so I want to explore with you today a little bit about how to overcome these problems. You know, Job's friends came to him, and one of them uh, says to Job, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. In other words, trouble is inevitable. But how many know when you tell people they're in trouble that the trouble is inevitable? That probably doesn't encourage them too much. And when we read the story of Job, he wasn't encouraged by that comment, was he? And so I'm not saying, we're not going to, fortunately, I'm telling you, yes, you will have trouble. You'll say, well, thanks, Pastor, I already know that. I'm in it. You know, but that's not where we're going to stop today. I'm just introducing the idea that this is inevitable. We all experience it. It comes to us at different times and various degrees. But what we need to be aware of is how to handle these things when they come into our life. So in this letter that we're going to look at today, which is the book of Philippians, we discover a man who writes to his friends when everything seems the darkest in his life. Now, this is Paul. He's towards the end of his life. He's in prison. He's been, you know, uh, basically, we could say he's falsely accused. We could talk about all the ways that he got there. He was preaching the gospel. People were upset. He ends up getting in, in, into prison, and he's now headed, and he's, people are trying to kill him. He's got a lot of people that don't like him because he's telling them that what they believe isn't the correct way to believe. He's alienated people. Uh, you know, see, we think that, you know, Paul, you don't, you've not read the book, How to you know, Influence Friends and you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I don't think he read that book uh, because Paul had a lot of people upset with him and he ends up you know, appealing to Caesar and he ends up in Rome and now he's in prison and he's writing at the darkest time of his life. People have forsaken him, abandoned him. He's just alone. And now he writes a letter to a group of people that haven't forgotten him, sent him a little love gift and now he's in prison, he's writing a letter to them, and I'm so shocked when I read this letter how joyous it is. You know, if you could take one word to describe the book of Philippians, these four little chapters, probably the, I think the theme, the word that would really stand out is the word joy. You know, Paul talks about joy. Paul is experiencing joy. And you're saying to yourself, Paul, how can you go through all these difficult things in your life and be filled with joy? And how many here would like to say, I would like to take all the difficult things in my life and be able to wade through it with joy? How many here would like to move through life with joy in your heart? Anybody up for that? Anybody want to move uh, towards that? See, Paul says here in Philippians 4.12, he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. If you keep reading the verse, he talks about contentment when things are going good, contentment when things are not going so good. And, he, and as he talks about this contentment, he's actually rejoicing regardless of the circumstances that most would interpret as being detrimental and negative. So I think you could easily have found a person that would be disillusioned and disgruntled, someone angry with God, with life, and with other people. And that's where a lot of people are camped today. They're upset. They blame God. They're upset with God. They're upset with others. They're upset with their spouse. They're upset with their kids. They're upset with their dog. I mean, it just goes on and on. We just get upset. We're upset all the time about what's going on in our lives. But now Paul is not living life like that. He's full of joy. And you go, okay, you've got all these bad things happening in your life, Paul. How can you have this joy? Isn't that a great question? How did you get there? You know, so he's writing to encourage these believers at Philippi regarding his own situation 
I think, as well as teaching them how to rejoice in the adversities of life. And I think that's powerful. So my question I'm raising today is, how do you deal with life's adversities? Do you complain? Do you quit? Do you lash out? Do you pray? How about coming to that place where you can literally rejoice? So that's what we're going to talk about. How would you like to discover the secret of having a joyful heart in life's most difficult moments? Who would, if I was going to teach a course on this, how many would you sign up? I want to end up with joy even though life is hard. Anybody for that? So in a 30-minute moment here, we're going to look at that, and I believe that you're going to gain some insights into how that can happen in your life and in my life as well. So we're going to take a look in Philippians chapter 1, four insights into maintaining a joyful attitude in spite of adversity. And the first one is learning to see the positives in the situation. I have four Ps today. You'll remember them. Look for the positive. Do you know in every dark cloud, there's a silver lining. There's, there's something here I can learn. There's something here I can get from. There is an upside to every downside. You know, I have a little philosophy in life. Every upside has a downside, and every downside has an upside. You just have to go look for these things. They're there. You know, God has a way of turning our tragedies and using them towards something good. But when you're in the middle of it, you can't see it. You see, I'm a lot older, and I can look backwards. Hindsight is so good. You go, oh, yeah. I remember that time in my life. It was the worst time. And now I can write later on and can say, and it was the time I grew the most spiritually. It was the time where God did some powerful things in my soul. I can look back to all of those moments and see the good that I couldn't see when I was in it. Anybody else relate to what I'm saying? You can look back now and say, at that time it was awful, but when I look back now, I can actually see some good things that were coming out of this really bad situation. But at the time, I couldn't see it. I was just too broken. I was too upset. I was too frustrated, you know? I think that adversity is one of the tools that God can use to bring about the deepest change in our lives. And listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And do we believe this verse? I think it's easy to say it, but it's another thing to experience it and live it and say this is the truth. And we know, and we have ex know in the sense that we've experienced this, that in all things God works for good to those who love him. So I always say to people, you know, if you can just get this in your mind and etch it in your heart, God is always good and he's always loving. Don't even question that. What I need to understand is when bad things are happening to me, what is it that I need to be learning in this context? What is it that God is going to use out of this that he's going to make for good? There's something that God is going to use for this. Now, I don't know if you've ever had these experiences in life, but, you know, sometimes you go through something and you go, I don't, I don't think I learned anything. I don't think uh, I understood what was going on. I don't get why this even happened in my life. And then eventually you forget about it. And then eventually one day, and it happens to me, and maybe because I'm a pastor, maybe it's a bit easier, but I think it's true for all of us. We meet someone later on, maybe years later, a decade later, this was about 15 years later, and this person comes to see me and starts sharing, and I go, oh, this is scary, because now for the first time, this thing that happened 15 years earlier is now making sense to me, and I'm able to use what God, the whole experience, I'm starting to understand what this person is talking about. I go, God, you're so wise. You know exactly what you're doing. Sometimes what is happening to you 
is not only going to help you, but it's also going to help somebody down the road. And that's so beautiful how God does this. Let's take a look here at how Paul sees the silver lining in the dark cloud of adversity in his life. Let's pick it up in chapter 1 and verse 12. So if you have a Bible, there's some there in the pews, grab one. Let's take a look at this chapter. We're going to look at a number of verses. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Point number one, Paul says, you know what? This is negative for me, but it's certainly positive for the gospel. Something good is coming out of my difficulty. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. In other words, they're saying, well, why are you here, Paul? Why are you in jail? He said, well, listen, I'm a servant of Christ. I was preaching the gospel. People got upset, and that's why I'm in jail. You go, well, what's the gospel, Paul? Then he begins to tell people. Now people are becoming Christians because they're seeing that Paul is willing to suffer for what he's explaining to them. They see the reality and the authenticity of it. And let me tell you something. In North America, we don't see it quite as strongly, but in the last number of years, I've had the privilege to travel in other parts of the world where there's great persecution. And let me tell you something. When people are suffering for the gospel, people who are watching it are realizing this is real. Because these people are laying down their lives for what they're talking about. It has a great impact in those cultures, let me tell you. Um, he goes, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters now have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. How many know that when you see one person stepping out courageously, it encourages other people to do it? And so now they're seeing Paul. He's willing to do this. It's actually encouraging other people who are shrinking back from fear to step forward and say, well, what's the worst that can happen to me? Oh, I have a new ministry. Paul had a ministry outside of prison. Now he has a ministry in prison. You know, I thought about this. You see, I'm a pastor. I'm preaching. Our culture's changing dramatically. And maybe in the next year or two, I'll get in trouble. Who knows? My ministry location will move from living stones to some prison. Guess what? I have a new sphere of ministry. You think they're going to stop me from preaching? Good luck. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen, folks. You know, and I'm saying that because it's reality. We need to understand something. You know, the context of our ministry can change. That's all happened to Paul here. And then he says, even those who were preaching the message with a divisive spirit out of rivalry, Paul himself had something positive to say. He said, hey, the gospel's being communicated. Look in verse 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter so do out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. Then, I, in change. then he says the beautiful statement, but what does it matter? I love it. What does it matter? The important thing that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. He said, you know what? They thought, okay, now we're going to take over and preach Christ. Even though they have the wrong motives, Paul says, I'm rejoicing. Christ is being preached. People are responding. In other words, how do these ad adversities work good, you may ask? Paul is able to say, hey, it's bringing the gospel to people. How does my adversities work towards me? Not only does it bring about a transformation and conforms me into the image of Christ, it's also used by God to encourage other people to do the right thing. It motivates others. 
I think it's the fuel for others to do what it's right. How many know that if we're all silent and never stand up to evil, evil will keep growing? Does everybody know that? But it takes one person, and if one person stands up, it emboldens other person to stand alongside of you. So you, you're the first one. It's always the hardest to be the first one, right? You go, I'm a little scared to do this, God. Jesus says, yeah, but I'm with you. And if it's you and I standing there, can you handle it? I go, yeah, if you're there, I can do it, you know? If it was just me, I don't think I could do it, God. I think I'd run. But if you're going to stand there with me, we can handle this, right? And if God be for us, who can be against us? So as long as we're in the right, it's amazing how courageous you can become when you're doing the right thing. Now, if you're doing the wrong thing, well, that's another story. You'll You'll be full of fear. But when you're doing the right thing, it brings courage into our lives. So... There are people now trying to make life difficult for Paul. So what does he do? He doesn't focus on them. What do we tend to do? We focus on them. Because we have a tendency in our lives to focus on problems. Isn't that the truth? Rather than focus beyond the problem. Paul is seeing a bigger picture. And that's what I'm talking about. You and I have to see the bigger picture. So how do you handle your critics, those who make life difficult for you? Well, Paul moves on. He doesn't let their pettiness rain on his parade. I think so often in church we focus on personalities rather than the person of the church. You know, it's the truth. Jesus is the person of the church. So as Paul says, the important thing is, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Now, I was reading in the NIV study notes, and it says this. What we need to understand here is that these preachers are not to be viewed as heretical. They're not teaching bad things. Their message is true even though their motives are not pure. And by the way, that's true. There's a lot of preachers, their motives are not pure. They're still preaching the right thing. The gospel has its objectivity and validity, and apart from those who proclaim it, the message is more than the medium. Now, this is very important. What's, he basic, what's this, these notes saying? It's saying this, that the, God's going to honor his message, but he doesn't have to honor the person delivering the message. And even though the person delivering the message can be messed up, if they say the right things, God's going to honor what's being said. Are you following this? And here's a great example. I remember a number of years ago, I was watching a documentary of this young child. They played it. It was over a number of years. The documentary was, you know, right then, but it was showing him as a young child preaching, and people were getting saved. Miracles were happening. And then he was a teenager, and then he was a young man, and now he was later on in life, and actually, he had gotten jaded. He was turned off. He thought it was a crock. He, he didn't believe it anymore, and yet he was still preaching it. But he was making a lot of money from it, so he didn't stop doing it. And he was trying to tell the guys doing the documentary. See, the Gospels, you know, these, these Christians are so stupid and gullible and all the rest of it. I mean, watch, I'll, I'll preach this and people will respond, you know. They, and what he didn't understand was he thought it was about him. What he didn't realize was God was working in spite of him. You know, I say to myself, listen, we focus too much on the messenger, Think about this. God can use anybody he wants to. I remember one time reading in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Balaam. God used his donkey to talk to him. So if God can use a donkey, he can use anybody. You know? So don't get, we can't get too high and mighty. It's not about us. It's about the message that God wants conveyed to people. So God now uses the vehicle of adversity to work out his purposes in and through our lives. Marilyn Abraham in her book, First We Quit Our Job, shares this insight 
You know, in the United States, they have people that they trained to work in the National Forest Department, but it's actually, they, they're actually kind of like guides in all of these historic sites. You ever been to some of those places and you, there's these guys and they're all dressed up in their outfits and they are guides and they explain things. He said, we were in this National Forest, some park in the States, and this guide came along and was explaining uh, a really a remarkable thing. She says, when a tree's life is threatened, Stressed by the elements of fire, drought, or other calamity, it twists beneath its bark to reinforce and make itself stronger. On the surface, this new inner strength may not be visible, for the bark often continues to give the same vertical appearance. In other words, it looks the same, but something on the inside is happening. Only when the exterior is you know, stripped away or when the tree is felled are its inner struggles revealed. God can use our adversity to strengthen us in ways that are not visible to the people around us. So one of the things that happens when we have problems, it does one of two things. We either become stronger and sweeter or we become weaker and we sour. We have a choice and God allows that decision to be made by us but it's not designed to do the latter. It's designed to do the former. God's trying to strengthen our lives and he allows difficulties to come into our lives to do that. I love the story of the ant who felt imposed upon, overburdened, and overworked. He was instructed to carry a piece of straw across an expanse of concrete. Obviously, this is a metaphor, right? The straw was long, heavy, and he staggered beneath its weight and felt he could not survive. Finally, as the stress of his burden began to overwhelm him and he began to wonder if life itself was worth it, See, isn't that stuff what we deal with? Of course. It says, the ant was brought to a halt by a large crack in his path. There was no way of getting across the deep divide, and it was evident that he'd have, if he had to go around, it would be his final undoing. The burden was so great. He stood there totally discouraged, didn't know what to do, and then suddenly a thought struck him. Carefully laying the straw across the crack in the concrete, he walked over it safely, reaching the other side. His heavy load had actually become a helpful bridge. Now, why am I saying that? Because many times what God is doing in our lives is creating something inside of us that one day will actually be the very vehicle that will take us to where we need to get to. And so we see adversity as our enemy, and what we need to see it as a tool that we can use later on to help us in a, in a challenging moment. So many times the burden that we're carrying today is the blessing God's gonna use in the future. Let me move on to the second insight in maintaining a joyful attitude in spite of adversity. Learning to value the prayers of other people. And I think this is so meaningful. You know, one of the reasons why God, you know, God designed church. This isn't to give me a job. You know, that's not the deal. God designed this concept of community for a long time because he wants us to live in community. He designed us to live in community. We're social beings. And also, when you're in community, you have to work through things with people. How many know that's true? I mean, if you live in a family, you have to work through issues. There's not one family that has everything go perfectly. You know, if they tell you that, they're not telling you the truth. They've had to work some, through some things. And you know what? We have to learn to love each other. See, I think we think love is an emotion. You know, I just feel, you know, wonderful about this person. No, love is a choice I'm making to love somebody even when they're not so nice. Now I'm beginning to move into the real understanding of what true love is. God loves us even though we're nasty. How many are happy about that? 
God loves you even though you're, you're, you're giving him fits sometimes. You know, like we give each other fits. But God still chooses to love us. That's such an amazing thought. And I love the fact that God says, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to do good things for you. So we're all learning how to become like God, how to be forgiving, how to be kind, how to be gentle, how to be understanding, how to be generous. We get to learn that. But how do you get to learn it? You have to do it in community. And so even though we may be a solitary single person here today, God says, I've set you in families. What is he talking about there in Psalms? He means he's bringing you into a community so you can build relationship and build life together and we can support and encourage one another. We don't have to walk alone. Not only is God walking with us, God brings community together and we have to learn how to, how to do this. Yeah, it's really easy to be spiritual by yourself. You know, It's a lot harder to be spiritual when you're in community, I can tell you that. So the greatest thing you can do for one another is to pray for them. That's the greatest gift we can give each other. And you say, well, why is it that way? Because when we pray, God starts working. And I love that about God because there's things that you and I cannot do for each other. We can come alongside, we can be understanding, we can listen, we can be supportive. But in reality, we don't heal people. You know, only God can do these kinds of things. How many appreciate it when God shows up on the scene and God-like answers begin to happen? Isn't that kind of fun? You're just going, whoa, this is a God thing. You go, how do you know it's a God thing? Because most of us, when we pray, we have in our minds, this is how God should do it. And then God doesn't do it that way. How many have experienced that? He goes, he does this over here, and you go, why is he doing that? I mean, I would have never done it that way. God, listen, why weren't you listening to me? I thought I had a better idea. God goes, you know nothing. You don't know what I'm doing inside of that person. You don't know the way I'm developing that person. You don't know their strengths and weaknesses the way I do. Yeah, you're right, God. Well, this is why I'm doing it. Okay, I'm bowing to you. You're smarter than me. I'll just back off, right? You know? Then I read in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Now, why is he rejoicing? First of all, he rejoiced that the gospel is being preached. Now he's going to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What's he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in their prayers that brings God's Spirit into the situation, which ultimately brings about deliverance. Now, here's what we think about deliverance. When I think of deliverance, and when you think about it often, we think about it like this. God's doing exactly what I want. Well, let's be honest. And then Paul goes, oh, but you know, for me, it doesn't matter if I live or die. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I will be delivered. I'm in jail here. I'm either going to be set free or I'm going to be executed, but either way, I'm going to be delivered. We don't think that way. But Paul does. Because he goes, what's the worst that can happen to me? Oh, you killed me. <laughs> Terrible. And I'm immediately now in the presence of my Lord and Savior Jesus with no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more problems. Sin is absent. I'm living in complete victory. See, totally different way of seeing life. But we're locked into, oh, it's got to work the way we think. It should be comfortable, should be safe, should be secure, we should prosper. That's, that's the way we think. He has confidence that what God is going to do is going to work out for his deliverance. Paul also, let's, let's just talk about prayer for a minute because I think a lot of us say, well, I said prayers, that's great. But when we're really concerned and we're praying for someone, we should also match that praying with feet. You go, what do you mean feet, pastor? 
Well, in Paul's case, this church blessed him financially. They were the only ones. When you read chapter 4, verse 19, they're the ones that gave him an offering. Now, Paul said, you know what moved me by this offering? It wasn't so much the money. What I was moved by was your heart in giving it. That's what blessed me. And I saw it as an offering unto God. And here's what I'm going to say to us. You know when we pray for somebody? Let me give you some practical ideas. Here's somebody maybe struggling. You say, you know, I've been praying for them. Why don't I go over to their place and say, look, you know, I know you've been sick for the last week. Can I just come over here and just wash dishes and help you out at house? How many think that's really praying with feet? You know, or you, maybe you bring a casserole over. Or you just do something thoughtful for them. It's not that you're changing their circumstances, but what you're showing them is your love and concern. How many see that? And when we start doing that for each other, what happens? People go, man, somebody really cares about me. But here's what our minds tend to do. Well, why doesn't anybody do this for me? You see, we got a problem. It's always about us. And in a minute, I'm going to tell you how to retain joy because when we think that way, we never have joy. So many times God uses our time of testing to strengthen us and give us the tools to effectively minister other people in the days ahead. And that's what Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. I could have said in some of our troubles because I think that's how we think. But no, God says, I'll comfort you in every trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So what's God not promising? He's not promising an absence of trouble. What he's promising is his presence in our trouble and he's promising that you and I are gonna learn things in that trouble so that we can help other people in their trouble. You say, well, you know, why doesn't God just, you know, I'm a Christian now, why doesn't God give all the bad guys trouble and all the good guys no trouble? You know, that's how our mind works, right? And God goes, listen, then that all of a sudden everybody would want to be a Christian because they don't want any trouble. They're not really following God because they love him as a person. They just follow God because they don't want trouble. You see the difference? So when you, and it says, I, I love everybody, God says. I cause it to rain on the just and the unjust. I cause it to shine on the just and the unjust. So God does good things for bad people. He does good things for good people. But he also allows trouble to come to both good and not so good people. Isn't that true? Yes, he does. That's the nature of who God is. So when you focus on ministry to others, your problems are seen in their proper relationship. What I mean by that, everybody has problems. Everybody has issues. I've lived a long enough time now to know this. And I found out something beautiful. When I'm busy ministering, even though I'm having my own issues, I forget about my problems because I'm so immersed in helping other people. I'm not living in denial. I know they exist. I know I've got to deal with things. But I'm also involved with other people. And what I've discovered over time is many people's troubles are so much greater than mine that when I'm busy with them, I'm starting to realize, man, I got nothing happening bad in my life compared to what's going on here. And it changes my whole perspective. Isn't that true? You know, would to God I could take every one of you to India for a one-week trip. I'm telling you it would cure a lot of North Americans really fast. You know, a lot of things we're complaining about, we would stop complaining immediately when we saw some of the dire poverty and the great needs. Some of you come from countries like that, Africa and India, there's a lot of poverty. And you understand it, and you know how fortunate we are in Canada. And, you know, when you're around people that have nothing, and, you know, we're, we're talking about not getting our way on something over here, it just, it just seems, it just drops with a thud. 
you know, you, it just doesn't go anywhere. You know, you're complaining and these other people are having trouble eating. It, it makes a big difference in our appreciation of what we really have. So people who live primarily for themselves are seldom content and happy with their lot in life. So you have to ask yourself, why am I not happy? I remember one day I was complaining to God. And God says, what are you complaining about? You know, and I jokingly said I was on vacation in Vancouver sitting on a beach when I was whining. God goes, what are you whining about? And I've, I've been educated by God. I mean, he's shown me. You know, I, I have the most wonderful life. I'm so thankful. You know, God has been good. And I think we need to all understand that. When we're a child of God, we should say I'm blessed. He made himself known to me. That's the number one greatest thing. Listen to what Paul says. He says, you know, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith. Now, why did Paul want to remain on earth? It wasn't because he was enjoying life. It was because he wanted to help others. How many see it? You see that? He says, for me, it's better to be to die. He says, look, so, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul is now concerned that they have joy. He's got it. He wants to pass it on. Let me move on to the third insight. The ability to keep our eyes on the person of Jesus. Okay, we've looked at number one, you know, skips my mind here. We just looked at uh, praying together. Oh yeah, finding, finding the right perspective. Finding the silver lining. But number three here, what do we see? Is that we keep our eyes on the person of Jesus. How powerful is this? Where is our focus in the challenge and difficulties of life? On Christ or on the problem? How many say usually it ends up becoming on the problem? Isn't that true? How many say that's probably where my focus goes, the problem, right? You know, keeping our eyes on Jesus in the storm of life is the only way that you'll be able to walk above despair. I, I wrote that. I like that statement. You know, and I think it's true. Now, I think of Peter. What's happening? You know, Peter's walking on water. How did, in the world did Peter walk on water? Well, there was a storm on the lake, Jesus is showing up to help them. He's walking on the water. How many think that's amazing? Jesus is a water walker. And the Bible says in the Psalms, only God can walk on the way. So Jesus is revealing to them that he's actually God. He's walking on the water. And this is powerful. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, guys. They thought it was a ghost. Don't be afraid, it's me. Peter says, well, if it's really you, let me walk out to you. Now, remember now, there's a storm going on. How many know when a storm's going on? You ever been around water when there's a storm going on? It's pretty dangerous. Peter says, uh, Jesus says, okay, Peter, come on out. Peter jumps out of the boat in the storm and starts walking on the waves in the storm. How many go, that's impressive. I'm impressed, right? The other guys, they're saying, no way in the world am I getting out of this boat, you know? It's like, why would I get up, jump out of an airplane when it's working, you know? Some people do that, but I don't. It's a good airplane, let's stay in there. Now, they're staying in the boat. Peter's walking on the waves, but what happens? He starts looking around at the waves, and what happens? starts sinking. And then he called, calls out, help me, Lord. Jesus just reaches down, picks them back up. What did they do? They walk back on the waves in the midst of the storm into the boat. They get into the boat. Jesus goes, I've had enough of this. Stop. And immediately the wind and waves. How many think that's pretty impressive? I mean, I'm impressed. And the disciples are freaking out. They're going, wow, who is this? I mean, he's even commanding the weather to change. 
And that's impressive that Peter was a water walker. How many say, I want to learn to be a water walker on the waves? And actually, the only way you can do it, here's the, here's the answer, keep the right focus. You've got to focus on one person. Who is it? That's the right answer. Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Where's Paul's focus? Look at what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ. To die is? How many go, that's my favorite life verse? You know, but I've thought a lot about this verse. For me to live is Christ. Can I say that? For me to live is Christ. My life is so caught up in the person of Christ. I find life in Christ. That's the only hope I have. That's the strength of my life. That's the joy of my life. That's the delight of my life. That's the pursuit of my life. For me to live is Christ. And I now realize to die is what? It's gain. Because you know what? We're only going to stay so long on planet Earth anyways. And we're, we're checking out one day. And where are we going to be? With Christ. Wow, what an amazing thought. We've got to remember that this is not our final destination, guys. How many like that? This isn't it. You know, sometimes some people have it really good in this life and other people have it not so good. But this is a temporary situation. We're all going to leave the planet and then one day return. Okay. We can maintain joy in distressful situations by keeping in mind the big picture. Too often the present adversities, the present pain obscures the great and ultimate realities of life. Isn't that true? Can I tell you, you're just passing through. You think it's a cave. I'm telling you it's a tunnel. You're just passing through. Yeah, but I'd, some people never get delivered in this life. They're still passing through. They're going to head off into eternity. And when you consider time versus eternity, time is nothing. It really is. It goes by quickly. Okay, finally, the last insight. We have a purpose greater than ourselves. I think this is the one that many of us, we need to get a hold of this point. This is going to help you. This is probably the one that we're struggling with. And if you get a hold of this one, you're going to have joy. Here it comes. The power of purpose is the difference between life and death, victory and defeat. You're in trouble if your purpose for living is not greater than yourself. We must have something far beyond ourselves and something far more noble to give our lives to. So if you're just living to make yourself happy. See, North Americans, that's what our goal mostly is. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. That's my life's purpose. Wrong purpose. That's why so many North Americans are so unhappy. Because that's not a noble enough goal. That's too self-centered. It's very destructive. Okay? Now, we need to give ourselves something more noble to live forward to. Dr. Laura, remember her? She was on the radio and TV. They asked her a question once. They said to her, you know, to describe what she was doing on the air. How many have ever heard her? Oh, yeah, she's interesting. She's Jewish, by the way. She says, I preach and teach and nag. I remind people that the reason they're unhappy, frustrated, and their lives are in chaos is because they are not focused on how to make their lives purposeful. Wow. That's powerful. In other words, what's your purpose? Why are you here? What are you doing? Well, I, I'm, I'm here to, to make myself happy. It's too small, see? People without purpose, they flounder. They lose hope. 
they eventually perish. You know, it's like if you don't know where you're going, it's like being on the stream and you're letting the current take you wherever it's taking you, okay? You have to have purpose. And if your purpose is to bring glory to God, to live for Christ, I'm going to tell you, it's such a high and noble purpose, it transforms everything. All of a sudden, you're moving from yourself at the center to Christ at the center, and you're going, hey, I'm living for one reason, to glorify Christ. I get up in the morning, I say, okay, God, it's not what I want today, it's what you want. What's our agenda today? It's a way of living life, you know. I have no idea what God's going to bring in my life today. But every day when you wake up with that kind of mindset, you say, hey, Lord, what are we doing today? God brings things into your life every day. Most of us don't even recognize it as God's opportunities to minister to other people. Can I just say that? We're just moving through life because we have our agenda. We're just moving through our own purposes. But God has a purpose. And it's so meaningful when you and I can move alongside of people and listen to what's going on. And God's saying, I want you to do this for this person, help that person with that. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, your life has meaning and purpose. It's pretty exciting stuff. It's an adventure. We don't have to travel the seas to do ministry. I, I think sometimes we do a disservice. We tell people, oh, you've got to go on this missions trip to do this. Can I tell you, you're all on a missions trip. You didn't know that. And you know what? You have enough information inside of you as children of God to go out there and at least pray for people, at least share your experiences with people, to care for people, to show love to people, to listen to people. Come on now. And all of a sudden, you're involved in people's lives. And you know what? It's not only enriching them, it's enriching your life at the same time. Purpose always gives you... uh, also gives you perseverance in times of adversity. Friends, when you are in a time of adversity, the temptation is to believe it will never end, but that's not true. We're on a pilgrimage. I've already said this. We're only passing through. It's not the final destination. Keep reminding yourself of this. Listen to what Paul says in verse 20. So that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for, for, me, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, and if I'm going, and if... I am to go on living in the body. This will mean fruitful labor for me. In other words, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep serving Christ. I'm going to just keep, uh, you know, I I get excited. I'm I'm more excited. I'm more passionate today than I've ever been in my life. I can tell you that right now. I got so many ideas in my head. I got so many books I can write. I have so many people I can train. I have so many parts of the world I can go to. I just keep thinking, you know, I want to preach the the best sermons, the most, have the most fruitful effect, the greatest impact. You see, it's all about where your head is at. That's what I'm trying to tell you today. And when you leave, uh, have a meaning in your life and purpose in your life, it inspires you to live beyond yourself and you're in something far greater than yourself. And that's exciting. You're a part of something so great. Do you realize that you and I are a part of something so great? This kingdom will never end. It's going to continue to grow. And that's why we pray every day, thy kingdom come. Well, folks, it already came in the person of Jesus. It is here right now. It's coming on, and it will continue to grow. And it is growing. And so often what we do is we focus on all the problems and all the negative things. Can I tell you, those things are going to pass away. All the problems you see today are going to pass away. Yeah, it's powerful. So, how do I maintain a joyful heart in the midst of adversity? I need to see that there's always positives in every adversity. 
even if it's just an opportunity for us to trust Christ more fully. Isn't that great? Oh, Lord, I have to trust you now. Didn't have to before on that area, but I have to do it now. Maybe you just found out you're sick. Well, I gotta trust God for my, my, for my healing. I gotta trust God for this. Maybe you're struggling financially. I gotta trust God for these finances. Maybe you're, you know, you're, 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 you're having relational difficulties. I gotta trust God for my marriage. Do you know what's neat? We have a brother in our church. He's from Nigeria. I love him. He prays. He's an amazing man. And you know what he said to me? The problem that people in North America have, in Africa, we had to ask God for everything. And in North America, we have to ask God for nothing. And you know what it did for me in Africa? It made me become a man of God. It made me trust God in everything. Now, how do I going to learn that? Adversity taught him that. Now, he could have been bitter and angry and felt, you know, abandoned by God, but no, that's not the right approach. You and I are going to have trouble. The Bible says that. But we can be of good cheer. We can be a joyful heart. We can say, okay, God... What are you up to right now in this situation? What are we going to do together? How are you going to work this out? You told me all things work together for good. How is this going to work out? You know, have that little conversation with God. You know, we need to value the prayers of other people. I can't do this life alone. You can't do this life alone. We need to keep our eyes on the person of Jesus. And finally, we need to have a greater purpose than ourselves. And when we focus on ministry towards others, it's far easier to have a grateful heart. We'll be able to rise above the adversities when our purpose for a living is to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ. Then, like Paul, it will no longer matter what happens to you. You'll be more concerned about what's happening through you for Christ's sake and the sake of others. Isn't that neat? It's not so much what's happening to me, it's what's happening through me. I'm more concerned about, you know, what's going to happen through me than what's happening to me. When you get to that stage, you're as free as a bird. I'm serious. The adversities, yeah, they're there. I'm not going to lie to you and say, oh, no, you're never going to have trouble. I would be preaching against the word of God. You're going to have them, you know. I love what Peter Marshall shares. It's such a great story. Let me tell it to you in closing. He preached a sermon. Peter Marshall was a very famous minister. He ended up becoming the Senate chaplain in the United States back in the 50s. They even made a movie about his life called A Man Called Peter. He preached a sermon, Who Can Take It? And he spoke of the circumstance of Handel when he wrote The Messiah. Has anybody ever heard of Handel's Messiah? Anybody here? A lot of you haven't heard it? Okay, then you get to this part. You know, he was a conductor, and he wrote this thing called The Hallelujah Course. Anybody ever heard of The Hallelujah Chorus? How many have ever heard? Please raise your hand. I want to know. How many have you ever heard? If you've never heard the Hallelujah Chorus, you need to go on YouTube and listen to the Hallelujah Chorus, okay? Amen. Now, I'm serious. You need to do that, okay? It's not just because it's long-haired music. I mean, it is, it's one of the greatest expressions of worship I've ever heard, okay? Now, just imagine this now. When you listen to the Hallelujah Chorus, and then it starts at the end, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It's pretty powerful, can I explain to you where Handel was in his life when he's writing this? Here's what was happening in his life. His health and fortune had reached the lowest possible ebb. His right side had become paralyzed, probably had a stroke. All his money was gone. He was heavily in debt. He was threatened with imprisonment. He was tempted to give up the fight. The odds seemed entirely too great. That was the circumstances in which he wrote the, the Messiah. 
at the lowest point, at the greatest adversity, the greatest trial, what did he do? He rejoiced. When you listen to the hallelujah chorus, you're going to go, this, this is mind-boggling. It'll send your soul skyward. I guarantee you, you're going to be flying after listening to that. You can't help it. It's so triumphant. It's so dynamic. What's he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is going to conquer all of humanity's enemies. See, we've lost sight of something. Yes. We're going to stand. I know I've gone a few minutes over today, but I just felt so strongly. I felt such a passion and an urgency today because I want you to rise above your adversities and be filled with joy. How many go, I'm a candidate to be filled with joy? I want to be full of joy. I don't want what's happening to me to define who I am. I want to be so full of joy that even when the difficult things in life come, I have a hallelujah in my soul. I am full of joy. They can't take it from me. The devil can throw all the nasties he wants my way, but I know God is screening exactly what I need. I already know God is in control. And I know God is great. I know God is good. I know God is loving. I know that all things are working together for good. I know these things. I've experienced it. I want to walk in joy. I want to walk in rejoicing. Paul writes in Philippians 4, rejoice. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Isn't that amazing? He's writing from a prison cell. Handel, hallelujah. His whole world is falling apart, but he knows it's not the end. See, the end for you and me, child of God, is eternity with our Lord, where there's no sorrow, no sickness, no tears, no dying, no loss. Hallelujah! That's what we have to look forward to. We can have a song in our heart. Amen? We can have a song of joy. With every head bowed, how many here say, you know, Pastor, I'm walking through adversity right now. Raise your hand. I'm walking through adversity right now. I want to pray for you, because here's my prayer, and not just for you. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I may not be walking through adversity, but I want to be a person full of joy. That's you. Raise your hand. All right. Let's pray right now that the Spirit of the living God, and we were praying this morning, and the Spirit of God was moving, I'll tell you. The Spirit of the living God would fall on you and fill you with the joy of the Lord which is our strength. So Lord, I pray today for my brothers and sisters. I pray today for every heart that hears my voice. I pray for everyone walking through adversity and difficulty and challenge. I pray today, Father, for those who want to be full of joy. I pray today that your spirit would come because you are the spirit of joy. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I pray today, Father, that we'd be an open heaven and joy would flood our hearts and we would leave here with a song in our hearts hearts and deep joy in our soul. It may not change our outward circumstances, but Lord, it's just changed my heart. I have a changed heart today. I'm full of your joy. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.